Hello and welcome to the SAM21 podcast. My name is Ryan LaFalla and I'm the chair of the Virtual Presence Committee here at SAM and will be your guide over the next several episodes as we take a deeper dive through some of the highlights and behind the scenes content at this year's virtual meeting. And first up, we'll be having an interview with one of our plenary session authors, uh, Dr. Lauren Salami, an emergency medicine uh, clinical ultrasound fellow at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. And we're going to be discussing her abstract point of care ultrasound as a rule out test in suspected diverticulitis reduces ED length of stay. Before we get into it, I just want to give a little background on the study. Um, so they performed a prospective observational study in patients greater than 18 uh, years of age presenting to the ED with symptoms concerning for diverticulitis uh, in patients that were going to get a CT scan and a total of 153 patients ended up um, getting both tests and in whom 49% ended up being positive for diverticulitis. So congratulations on your plenary session. Um, do you want to walk us through the results and, and what you found? Uh, sure. Thank you, Ryan, for inviting me. And hello, everyone. Um, so I think you gave a, a great introduction to what this study was. As Ryan just said, these were all your typical patients who come to the emergency department for rule out diverticulitis, or maybe diverticulitis is one of the top few things on your differential. And we essentially asked the question of, do they all need CAT scans? Is there a better, more efficient way that we can diagnose these patients without missing um, any signs of disease. So um, exactly what we did was put the ultrasound probe on the patients um, soon after we decided to perform a CAT scan to look for diverticulitis. And our results are what is presented for our sensitivity. We had a 95% sensitivity rate. Our specificity wasn't quite as high, it was 77%. And, but our negative likelihood ratio was low. It was, um, we had a negative predictive value, sorry, of 93% and a negative likelihood ratio of 0.07. That was looking for any diverticulitis. We also looked at, you know, is can we find complicated or uncomplicated diverticulitis, which we could do, but sometimes our results got a little bit confused. Um, so, and using our pretty high negative predictive value, what we ended up doing was, um, we looked at those patients and we wondered, do they, did, the, did these patients with the negative results need CAT scans? And we found that we were able to find a large proportion of patients that really didn't need a CAT scan, that didn't have any disease on the CAT scan, and also didn't seem to have disease on their ultrasound. In the end, we combined a negative ultrasound with no elevated white blood cell count and no history of diverticulosis. And we created a clinical decision-making tool if the patient met all of these criteria then we said they were safe for discharge um, with a diagnosis that was not diverticulitis. This ended up saving 59 minutes per patient overall in our study. So that was a time saving that was spread out over all of the patients for those patients that actually didn't have diverticulitis on the ultrasound and met the criteria. They almost saved three hours for each one of those patients. And I think that really sums up the study. Uh, and uh, obviously a great potential to, to save CT scans. I think a lot of people, myself included, looking at this study would have the question of, um, given that there's inherent uh, diagnostic uncertainty in these patients, what kind of um, other pathologies uh, were seen and, and what were some of the fallouts? Um, that's a great question. So the most common other pathologies, I don't have it really right in front of me, but what's sticking out to me when I was looking at the data was um, a 
good portion of um, not a good portion, but one of the larger portions of patients that actually had pathology that did not have diverticulitis, um, where a few patients had SBOs, um, a few patients had nephrolithiasis. And then the other one was there's a lot of overlapping disease with diverticulitis and colitis. So some patients either were called negative or positive by us. And even the radiologist who's reading the CAT scan, it kind of said like, it's one of the two, please clinically correlate. Um, those were the overlapping diseases. I would say the majority of patients that didn't have diverticulitis on, on the ultrasound also didn't have diverticulitis or any pathology on the CAT scan though. But SBOs, kidney stones, and colitis were the ones that stuck out. And admittedly, I have never seen a diverticuli on an ultrasound before, uh, as it is not one of the core kind of emergency <laughs> medicine indications. Can you uh, kind of briefly walk us through what that would look like and some of the uh, methodology you used with the ultrasound? Uh, yeah, of course. So I'll try to describe it. Um, the first thing to learn, I think, that is the location of the sigmoid colon on, on ultrasound. Um, so if you think of the, your sagittal view of the pelvis, you have the bladder, and then depending on if it's a man or a woman, behind that you may have the uterus. So behind the uterus or the bladder and your sagittal view of the pelvis, you'll actually see the sigmoid colon. And what we did was we followed the sigmoid colon both in a transverse and sagittal planes until um, through the left, um, like iliac fossa, until it became this descending colon. And we also evaluated that part of the colon and descending in a longitudinal and sagittal, transverse and sagittal planes, sorry. Um, and inflamed, the inflamed colons are a lot kind of like more, more brighter, more echogenic and um, more anechoic all in the same, all in the same fashions. The walls of the bowel will look anechoic. And one of the things that we look for are asymmetric bowel wall thickening. So we measured the bowel walls, but also kind of um, qualitatively just look to see if there was, if there were thickening, if there were no actual asymmetric thickening, then that will start to go against diverticulitis and to see actual diverticuli on the ultrasound, you'll actually see, you actually will see it. It'll be in this outpouching from the bowel wall. And it sort of looks like a mushroom shaped shape. And that's a diverticuli. If there is that asymmetric bowel wall thickening, then you'll start to think maybe this is diverticulitis an actual inflamed diverticulum. And then you can also find um, some echogenic fat that is non-compressible right around that diverticuli. And that would be fat stranding, which would again be consistent with inflammation. You may also find a sonographic Murphy sign, if you will, just tenderness right in that area. Uh, and I think that is, those would probably be the most important things. You look for asymmetric bowel wall thickening, the actual diverticuli, and the fat stranding around it that you just cannot compress. It looks kind of hyperechoic, that fat stranding. I imagine there was a lot of education that went into the providers uh, performing uh, the study. What else did you learn uh, in the process of kind of doing this research, uh, recruiting patients and, and uh, performing the research? Yeah, I guess there was a good amount of education, but probably not too much more than really bringing any other ultrasound skill into your department. One person, our like head author, Dr. Hamish Kui, that really taught everyone in the, in the beginning, how do we do this scan and um, did a lot of the train, individual training of people on shifts as well. Um, so it was about a one hour training session that just went through clips of what diverticulitis looks like and what our scanning protocol is. And then um, as people were enrolling, 
uh, patients in the study, he made sure to um, train people on the spot and make sure that they had done at least three proctored scans. In addition to all of the training that goes into just teaching people a new skill for the whole research, I think it's just very humbling to see how much planning went into making the protocol and how many years it takes um, to enroll the patients and then analyze the data and figure out how to find what is the, what are the meaningful results at the end of this. So it really shows you how many different people are involved in an end result. Well, congratulations. I look forward to reading uh, your, your future uh, work. So good luck on Wednesday. Thanks for joining <laughs> us on the podcast. And uh, any parting words? That's it. Thank you for inviting me. Great. And now it's over to you, Carly. Hi, this is Carly Easton from the Virtual Presence Committee. And now I'd like to introduce Dr. Matthew Stoll, who is leading the chief resident forum at the annual meeting this year. He is the residency director for the emergency medicine residency and assistant professor for the departments of emergency medicine and critical care at the University Hospitals Cleveland Medical Center and Case Western Reserve School of Medicine. It's really great to meet you, Dr. Stoll. Hi, Dr. Easton. Glad to be here. So we're here today to talk about the chief resident forum. It's so ironic because almost exactly 10 years ago in 2011, I was attending the SAEM Chief Resident Forum before the start of my chief year. So it's really awesome because I have many, many fond memories of not only the Chief Resident Forum, but of my chief year. So it's really great to be talking about this. So my first question for you is, as leader of the Chief Resident Forum this year, why do you feel it's important to have a Chief Resident Forum and, and how did you become interested in this as an opportunity to teach? Sure, it's a great question. I think. You know, for me, um, chief resident, when becoming a chief resident, it's probably one of the most unique leadership opportunities, but also challenges that you're ever going to have, because there's really, honestly, probably no other leadership position where you have so much impact, but yet sometimes such a unique place in in a hierarchy, if you will, right? Because chief residents are kind of middle management. And there's not a lot of those in medicine. We're really good at, 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 you know, anointing someone to be chief or chair or in charge, but not always sharing that power or that line of responsibility. And so I think, you know, for me to, to reflect on your own experience as well as my own, it was perhaps the most unique leadership experience an opportunity that I ever had, um, but it also presented its unique challenges because no matter what kind of leadership experience you have going into being chief, I think there's no question that you've never experienced something quite like this before. And so uh, I think it's really important to give folks a chance both to have a communal place to, uh, you know, meet chiefs from around the country, because let's be honest, I think, you know, chief residents tend to be interested in getting more involved with academia moving forward. And so it gives you a great chance to network with people who you undoubtedly will be colleagues with, whether they are at your own institution or otherwise. It gives you opportunity to see that you're not alone, um, because all chiefs go through similar challenges at the end of the day, quite honestly. Um, You know, it can feel really isolating in that middle management role. But when you realize that, you know, your program is do, is is struggling with the exact same issues of wellness, scheduling, um, you know, conference structure, things like that, as the place right next door or you know, a thousand miles away. Um, it becomes a little bit more reassuring that you aren't just you know a hamster spinning on the wheel the whole time. So I think it, it you know it it plays those twofold roles. But the the biggest goal for us is to just give people a little bit of insight into what they can expect in their future as chiefs over the course of the year. 
Yeah, it is a really great way to learn, you know, those skills and also meet and network other with other chiefs at other places because they will definitely have maybe experiencing something you're about to experience and they might have advice for you or vice versa. You can help them through their experience or even just be, you know, a, an out, an outlet for them. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things we've tried to do recently is really try to make the chief forum a little bit more longitudinal. It's not just that bolus of knowledge that you get at SAM anymore. We try to keep you in touch through things like Slack and, you know, even we've been sort of extending out the experience a little bit over the course of weeks. Um, so that folks could actually learn a little bit more and stay in touch with each, with each other going into this challenging year that will be chief resident year. That's really great to hear. So I want to touch base about the current pandemic. So are there any new or different challenges that you have seen or heard chief residents are facing these days? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's no doubt that chiefs are, chief residents are the you know, face of the residency to the residency leadership team, but they are also the face of the residency leadership team often to the residents. And so anything that's challenging about residency often gets reflected into those chiefs. And so as COVID, I think, has made it more challenging to gather and really do the things that make us happy, right? Uh, just that family feel of residency has been disrupted a little bit. Um, whether that be because you just can't get together as a class or as an entire residency uh, as much as we used to be able to do, or, uh, you know, it, the, the challenges of a Zoom conference session, which chiefs are often responsible for, um, both of those things come to mind when I think about, like, unique challenges that this last year or two of chiefs have had to deal with that no other chief class has had to approach before them. Yeah, exactly. Maintaining kind of that wellness or family feel when you're not actually allowed to be together, I think has been, I'm sure has been incredibly challenging in the past year. So yeah, I'm I'm always so impressed. I think that's that is something that our um, you know, I think the chief residents probably around the country can reflect on this year and have struggled with, I'm sure. Um, but I'm always impressed with the amount of innovation around this space and the the whether it be virtual happy hours, socially distanced uh, events, uh, you know, making sure. I mean, I'm I'm as you mentioned at the at the uh, top. I'm in Cleveland, so we go about six months of the year where we have to be inside or otherwise free to death. Uh, and so that, that makes it challenging in a pandemic where you can't have more than a you know handful of people in a room at a time. But uh, you know, I really respect and admire the, the chiefs that have been rolling with these punches and trying to, you know, cling to the uh, you know, the, the the ways of maintaining that sense of family in a residency. Because let's be honest, for me, that's probably one of the strongest pieces of what got me through my residency and helped me you know, maintain some element of well-being throughout the challenges uh, that were those four years. How did the chief resident forum have to make adjustments to meet the demands of a virtual meeting? Sure. I think, you know, one of the things we've worked on for a number of years on the chief resident forum is making it as highly effective as it possibly can be, right? And so, you know, the, the SAM meeting is always engaging and always uh, really, you know, I always go to it and, you know, come home with a lot of new ideas, whether it be from research, education, or anything in between. Um, but uh, the chief resident forum, you know, has always been a long day in a, you know, ballroom, essentially. And so we've really worked to make it more engaging 
engaging, more time for networking. Um, and that all had to kind of be reimagined when you go on to Zoom, because, uh, you know, as you know, it's hard to have a group conversation uh, truly uh, on Zoom. And so what we've done is is really dropped it down to uh, a relatively little amount of time. We went from about eight hours of content down to four. So it's really just the facts, right? Just what it is you need to know to be successful. So covering some, you know, basics of leadership uh, and some central tenets of like residency leaders uh, who have long experience there. We've got a little bit of primer on scheduling uh, to be the best scheduler you possibly can be. Uh, Some ideas of how you can innovate your conference and make it as maximally effective as possible. And then the last session is on um, maintaining, you know, balance and your well-being despite being that middle manager, because that brings with it a wealth of challenges that you don't even realize, you know, is is coming at you. Um, That said, after SAEM, we're going to have a couple other sessions because we know, let's be honest, four hours on Zoom is probably enough for anyone. I this does not come with a prescription for Lovenox, so we don't want you guys to develop a DVT. Uh, so we need you to get up and move around, think again. And so, uh, you know, a couple weeks later, we'll have some follow-up sessions, uh, which would usually be contained in the day if we were actually all in person, on things like dealing with the challenging resident or challenging communication issue with your residency leadership team, as well as one on um, residency recruitment and how to do that effectively as a chief resident. So, uh, you know, we've made it a little bit more longitudinal. So there's a couple touch points for you all uh, as you uh, grow as chief residents. I'm sure they will be so impacted by all of it. And it's really great content, it sounds like. Well, Dr. Stoll, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today about the Chief Resident Forum. And I know that on behalf of all the chiefs all over the country, thank you for all that you have done for the Chief Resident Forum this year. And um, we really appreciate you. Great. Thanks, Dr. Easton. It's a pleasure, and I look forward to seeing a lot of you at SAM virtually this year. And that's it for this episode. Join us tomorrow for additional features, and join us online at sam.org.